I didn't take the fish from the goddamn water. The fishermen of the British Isles who came to Newfoundland during the summer months was codfishing people. The problem of survival. Hello, everybody. I am Drew Brown, Editor-in-Chief of the Newfoundland Labrador Independent. We are here on the Indie Podcast. Um, it's going to be a really fun episode, and by fun, I mean not necessarily a fun listen at all, because we are talking with Laura Winters and Bridget Clark from the St. John's Status of Women's Center about the relationship between the Safe Harbor Outreach Project, better known as SHOP, um, and the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, better known as the RNC, as well as the Survivors of Sexual Violence in the Criminal Justice System report that came out last November. Um, but before we do that, we're going to have some fun with all the terrible news that's happening across this wonderful country that is built on stolen land. Um, and for that, uh, co-host Andy Bullman is going to take the lead. We're going to start federally, and I didn't write any jokes because it's not great. Uh, it looks like the Canadian military will possibly be deployed in the prairies to assist with the pandemic. So troops would be deployed through the office of Bill Blair, a, um, federal officer of public health and safety, who has said he has not received requests for help from the Alberta government. Um, so I guess I'll do it for them. Uh, they need some help. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I mean, the important thing to know about Alberta is that they can never admit any mistakes ever to the federal government. So, you know, if the federal government decides they need to send in some help to, like, save Alberta from itself, then that's fine. But, you know, Alberta is never, you know, Jason Kenney is not going to ask for, you know, any kind of assistance. He doesn't even really want to do the lockdown, but you guys won't stop going to casinos that they left open. So there's no choice left. So if you're in Alberta and you feel like you do want some help, just send up a flare or an SOS. <laughs> we'll see it and we'll do what we can. <laughs> Good luck, Alberta. Um, PEI, meanwhile, returned through a state of lockdown. Uh, gyms are closed, libraries are closed, restaurants available for takeout only um, because there's now some community spread. And Prince Edward Island has asked every 20 to 29-year-old to be tested, which uh, is really pissing off my sister who turns 30 in a week. <laughs> it's her fourth COVID-19 swab. Well, you know, as soon as you <laughs> turn 30, uh, COVID magically stops <laughs> affecting you. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that's terrible. Good luck, PEI. Um, it's basically a, a cruise ship. Is what, so didn't play out well for them. So <laughs> knock on wood. Um, Trudeau announced that some Canadians will begin receiving the vaccine next week. Priorities are residents and staff of senior care facilities, adults 70 and older, healthcare workers, and adults in Indigenous communities um, who are particularly at risk of um, sort of massive amount of spread. Hmm. So that's who's getting the vaccine first. That's pretty good. Okay, so provincially, Nalcor bonehead. Oh, sorry, bonuses. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when the fruit hangs low, you have to pick it. It's good Freudian slip. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Nalcor Stan Marshall received a bonus of three. It's a hilarious number. Three hundred and fifteen hundred thousand dollars. Well, you know it's. Sometimes you just got to pay yourself basically your same salary and bonuses, even though you haven't fucking accomplished anything in a year. Drew, that moat's not going to build itself. 
Man, I mean, I, I'll be lucky if I get like fifty dollars, like as a bonus. Would you guys think of Stan Marshall's kids? <laughs> Goddamn it! I mean, honest, like honestly, in the whole Alcor bonus thing, like I'm less agitated about Stan Marshall, who of course has a very unfortunate job trying to get this shit sorted out. I'm significantly more pissed off about uh, Gilbert Bennett and Paul Harrington getting massive bonuses after being named in the fucking Muskrat Falls inquiry as like yeah. contributors to the fact that Muskrat Falls is a fucking train wreck. So I, like I, I don't, don't know. have those numbers in front of me, but I think they got bonuses of seventy thousand. Yeah, I, I don't know about Harrington, but like Gilbert definitely was like uh, seventy thousand dollars, which is just like a stupid amount of money. It feels like they're just printing their own money. I'm like, I ha- there's not that money here. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> mean, getting it. Yeah, this, you know, the rest of us are. <laughs> fighting over pocket change but now of course just like printing you know the money printers going burr <laughs> um you know and it's just like their excuse obviously is that you know like they had they have to pay out these big bonuses to like incentivize people to do the best possible job or else they're going to be lost to like the private sector who will definitely want to pay these guys a lot of money to fuck other stuff up i guess but like it's just like who who do they think we are? Honestly, like, how fucking dare you, Nelcor? I can't even bring myself to get mad about this anymore because I'm just fucking spent and done. See, so you were you were ready to do it today. <laughs> You're fine. Dr. Janice, of course, and local um, COVID nineteen briefings has said that Christmas parties and gatherings and COVID nineteen could be a perfect storm. Um, so they've begun to announce sort of Christmas rules. And um, meanwhile, Dr. Hagee um, spent the evening at a liberal fundraiser at Ballyhaley Golf Course. So that almost seemed to send two messages. Please respect the rules uh, and the rules don't apply to us. <laughs> the two. I mean, I heard it was, I'm just trying to figure out what kind of party it was. I feel like, do you think there's mistletoe? Do you think there was mistletoe? Did they play spin the bottle? If it's closed mouth kissing, it's fine, right? <laughs> I mean, they did say all health procedures were being followed. Um, right. Okay. I mean, the $250 per plate would buy a lot of PPE, so I imagine they were probably well covered. Right, right. Of course. Okay. I mean, yeah. And I don't really know if spin the bottle is a liberal thing. They're more like seven minutes in heaven. <laughs> Seven minutes in heaven, cash for access. Yeah. Were there body shots, Dr. Haggy? <laughs> and that's um, what's going on provincially <laughs> and municipally. Um, lots happening. The budget was released recently. There's so much to unpack with the budget that I think we're almost better off discussing that in its yeah. own episode. The budget should definitely be its own episode. In fact, as soon as I leave uh, this current recording session, I have to go back to the incredible indie home office and edit uh, a Jess Potter's dispatch from the budget the other day. So it's going to be great. It looks, I mean, the, the report looks good, but the budget looks terrible. Uh, it's great. Everybody... It seems like there was nothing in it to really satisfy anybody, which is the perfect kind of municipal budget mm-hmm. um, that we all know and love. Great. And so that's what's happening in the city. A terrible budget. That's your roundup. Okay. Um, I guess the best thing to do is probably open with a trigger slash content warning since this is going to be fairly heavy discussion compared to like, you know, you found the biggest dog or you wrote Chess Crosby's Instagram. Yeah, I just want to give a uh, content warning. Um, we are discussing, um, you know, sexual and gender-based violence in today's episode. So it's going to be some pretty heavy content. So please take care of yourself. 
I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, Drew Brown, and uh, I'm here with co-hosts Andy Bullman and Jen Brown, as well as guests uh, Laura Winters and Bridget Clark, um, who are joining us today to talk about the survivors of sexual violence in the criminal justice system, as well as the breakdown in relations between SHOP and the RNC. Um, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Um, how did the relationship with uh, SHOP and RNC come about in the first place? Sure. So initially, the SHOP RNC relationship started back in 2014 when SHOP was hearing from sex workers in the community that they were having really negative experiences with police, uh, including judgment and stigma um, and being disbelieved when they were reporting violence, both inside and outside of the sex industry. So those sex workers, those survivors uh, really were not getting the services that we all deserve uh, from the RNC. And so we forged a partnership in order to try to mediate some of the harm that was happening. Uh, we really hoped to see a shift in the culture of the RNC in terms of having a more human rights harm reduction approach to supporting people in the sex industry. Uh, and, you know, that would have required a lot of internal work on their part. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, and we weren't able to achieve what we wanted from that relationship. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the initiatives that like SHOP undertook with the RNC over the six years of the partnership? So really, we're a very small and underfunded staff team when it comes to SHOP. I mean, across women serving organizations in this province, I would say everyone's underfunded, but SHOP especially, they only have two staff people. And in their time with that RNC relationship, they offered uh, a, a number of training sessions, which unfortunately the RNC didn't avail of, and that was training around how best to support people in the sex industry in St. John's. Uh, we offered a number of reports around how best to engage with sex workers, uh, some harm reduction strategies. We offered reports around things like Operation Northern Spotlight. And the really important piece around that is SHOP was working directly with people engaged in sex work to try to lift up their voice, their experiences, and their opinions, and their expertise, and bring those directly to the RNC. Unfortunately, we receive no response to those reports. So that's a really difficult circumstance when you are taxing community by bringing them together to create this information and then not getting a response from those in power. So really, it was those kinds of lack of response, lack of proper engagement around what a meaningful partnership is that led to this decision uh, to end this partnership. And again, really a huge amount of effort on behalf of our very small under-resourced team uh, and at the end of the day, we said, look, we can't create the change needed here. This needs to be internal change. This is about structural and cultural change. It's not about, you know, unique one-off officers because we did have liaison officers attached to shop. And the intent was that we could connect with them directly um, to get better outcomes from the RNC for, for our shop participants. And unfortunately, we didn't see uh, those outcomes improve either. So at the end of the day, it was like, we're putting a lot of time and resources into this and it's just not having the outcome that we desire and that our community deserves uh, at the end of the day. I mean to a certain extent do you think this came down to like a philosophical disagreement ultimately between what shop does and you know the way you know the way it sort of like shop approaches sex work is from like a harm reduction perspective versus the RNC approach it as you know it's a criminal problem basically like you know. 
that's a very big piece of it. And I mean, we do call for the decriminalization of sex work as a harm reduction, human rights-based approach to legislation. However, we really believed that there could be change made even within that criminalized environment. And that's the change we were looking for from the RNC. And what we see, I guess, from this failed relationship is that you're absolutely right. There is a philosophical difference around how best to support people engaged in the sex industry. And the RNC weren't able to make the shifts necessary. And so when we were continually hearing from our community about the level of harm they were experiencing, at the end of the day, we just said, we stand with sex workers. They desire change in RNC practices. And so do we. That's why we engaged in this relationship. The relationship isn't working. And so it's time to call a spade a spade here and say, this has not been effective. We need more. And we really hope that the response from the RNC, though we haven't received one yet, but we hope rather than defensiveness or, um, you know, a response that highlights the fact that they think they're doing well here, that they step back and say, what is going on? What's wrong internally? Why would a community organization feel the need to break these ties? And that it turns into an opportunity for reflection and change. So I guess the decision at the end of the day was about standing with sex workers and it's about accountability. The RNC is accountable to all of us and I think they're especially accountable to the most stigmatized, marginalized folks among us who I would say are the population of sex workers in St. John's because of the criminalized nature of their work, as you mentioned. Mm. I guess before we move on, um, what are some of the like the specific changes that, you know, you shop would need in order to like have a more sort of productive relationship with the RNC. Although I guess it's, you know, like what it's more so like, what does the RNC need to do to have a more productive relationship? I think first and foremost, in terms of accountability, there needs to be recognition that there's a problem here and that what they're doing is not serving uh, people well in terms of people who are engaged in sex work and their needs when reporting to police. I think we're hearing again about really negative responses from police towards that community and the community of sex workers is not alone. So they're not the only uh, folks who are having issue with the police and with the criminal justice system. We also recently published a report around survivors of sexual violence and the gaps in the criminal justice system and certainly police response has also not been a appropriate uh, to that population. And of course, lots of sex workers are also survivors. There's lots of violence experienced inside and out of the industry. Uh, But I think the report we recently published compiled with the issues around shop points to a real cultural and structural issue within RNC in terms of their inability to properly serve people who are survivors and people who are marginalized. So before we dive into uh, Bridget's report, I did want to mention, you know, this is very timely that we're talking about this. Uh, November 25th was the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Um, Just the other day on December 6th, it was the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. um, As we, you know, remember the 14 uh, women that were killed um, just because they were women um, studying engineering in Montreal, also known as the Montreal Massacre. And where it's December and everyone's doing their year-end reports and statistics, um, the Canadian Femicide released their stats, and they're very, very shocking. Um, In Canada this past year, 149 women and girls were killed. Um, 
uh, 25% of those women uh, and girls were Indigenous. Um, and the other stat that came out was one of four women killed dies at the hands of a male uh, partner. Um, so again, you know, we are talking about some heavy, heavy, disturbing content here, um, but it's very, very important to discuss. Um, so I just kind of wanted to ask you, Bridget, could you provide um, just like a little brief overview about your report and like the highlights that came out of it? Yeah, so... In late September, St. John's and really a lot of the rest of the province and perhaps even the rest of the country um, witnessed the mistrial in the Snell Grove case, which was the second trial, of course, that had gone to court. And and what really we saw in town and, and just down the street at the um, Supreme Court was a huge gathering and presence of survivors of sexual violence and gender-based violence and allies um, who were coming forward in support of Jane Doe and also each other in recognition that um, interactions with the criminal justice system can cause a whole lot of harm, certainly in that case, um, and many other cases of of Jane Doe's um, and all of the Jane Doe's who we don't know locally and across the province. Um, So it really prompted us, it redirected our attention while we focus so much of our programming and our efforts within the St. John's Status of Women's Council to responding to gender-based violence. Um, This was a real kind of um, call to focus and even a call to action, I think, that we saw in our community and we saw it as our job to respond. So we know so much from the expertise of, of women that we know in our community about what their interactions have been like, but we thought it was worth our effort and our focus to look at what research has been done um, locally and across Canada to see if that aligns with what we know from the voices of lived experience. And it absolutely did. A lot of it was kind of um, validating and reiterating things that we already know, but there was also some learnings in there for us as well. So what the research points to across Canada is that by and large, survivors of sexual and gender-based violence don't report their experiences to police. They identify in in research from survivors themselves that in those attempts to report violence that they've experienced, women and other marginalized genders, you know, especially trans folks and non-binary people uh, who are experiencing really high rates of violence themselves, you know, report having experiences of blame, of disbelief, of interrogation, and even being criminalized themselves in attempts to report violence. So that all leads to sexual assault being the least reported crime in Canada. And it's, you know, not a big surprise to think about about that statistic and why that is. So we did a bit of a dive on um, a term that was actually new to me. The concept wasn't, but, but the terminology itself was, which is the justice gap. And that was a big part of um, kind of centering the report around experiences from survivors themselves. So the justice gap speaks to um, the fact that the vast majority of survivors of sexual violence are in fact marginalized, you know, from experiencing homelessness, living in poverty, being indigenous or women of color, being sex workers, living with disabilities or mental health or addictions issues, and that that actually has a really strong correlation with a lack of access to the justice system. So that means either an inability or not enough safety to be able to report those experiences, or if they do, those people have a higher rate of um, their cases being deemed unfounded by police in Canada. And if they're not, they often experience a huge um, gap in terms of having their cases investigated. Um, if they wanted to press charges, there's there's a huge series of gaps in terms of um, people who are actually most likely to experience violence and their inability to access safely the criminal justice system. So from that, we kind of looked at 
the gaps or deficiencies in reform work that's happening in the criminal justice system, because that's so often the response when we see these issues is, okay, what's got to change? Um, you know, what new legislation or what new models can we apply here? And what we really found was that, you know, while a lot of these uh, reform uh, initiatives were really well intended, uh, the the evidence and the research shows that they really just don't have the kind of widespread um, systemic change that survivors really need and deserve, and that many of us are calling for as advocates and allies. But instead, even if, like I said, with really well-intended design, um, there's just not the kind of measurable outcomes that we're looking for. So, for example, the um, recent bill that passed its second reading um, in Parliament, Bill C-337, which is an, an act to amend the Judges Act, I believe. I could have that title wrong. I yeah, that was one of my questions. If you could, like, what is this Bill C-337? Where did it come from? What does it mean? This is a good step. If you could just break that down, you know, for for those of us who don't have the, you know, political science background or the, you know, gender studies lens. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was certainly um, a piece of learning for myself um, in in this kind of process and in, in the review. And I actually um, was urged to reach out to a couple of folks who are experts in the legal field. And, and it was kind of uh, reaffirming, I think, for myself and many of us that um, people who are experts uh, in law were very unsure about some of the details themselves and, and where it originated from, um, which kind of really speaks to sometimes uh, the complexity and uh, just, you know, shagging around trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, and so it was a bill that was originally first brought forward a couple of years ago. And more recently, um, it actually, I should say, it, when it was brought forward the first time, um, it died due to lack of popularity. Um, so it died in the Senate, and it was recently brought forward as a government bill compared to the first time when it was a private act uh, or a private amendment to an act, I should say. And when it was brought forward as a government bill, it was incredibly popular. And what it's aimed at making um, mandatory is sensitivity training around um, sexual violence and trauma for federal judges in Canada. And one of the things that we reference in the report is a really fantastic um, summary and critique, which is produced by Heidi Illingworth with the Federal Ombudsman for Victims of Crime. That was produced in 2019. So I encourage anyone who's curious um, to Google that because it's it's really easy to find online. And I learned a lot from it myself. Um, so she pointed to a couple of really important flaws in the act itself, which is that um, it's mandated at federal judges. Um, and what we know about um, sexual assault cases is that they're predominantly heard by provincial judges. So that's kind of a bit of a, a miss there. Um, and it's also um, my understanding is that it's only for new judges. So judges who are currently sitting um, won't actually have that mandated. And then the other thing comes down to is the content of the training itself. It leaves a lot to the imagination about where the training will come from, who will develop it, um, you know, what the focus is, will it be inclusive, um, you know, of gender, you know, diverse genders experiences, will it be culturally adequate um, for, as you say, the majority of sexual violence survivors who are Indigenous, it leaves a lot um, up to question. And again, it points 
back to what I mentioned earlier about um, mandated training and and those kind of models often just don't result in the kind of widespread change that we really need. Um, you know, what we know about kind of one-off training sessions, especially when they're forced, is that it doesn't always involve um, a really serious buy-in or commitment that really requires ongoing internal long-term work for the kind of participants who hold a lot of power in the criminal justice system, like judges, like police, um, yeah. Okay, yeah, and um, just to backtrack uh, a little bit um, to reporting, um, you know, the vast majority of survivors who report sexual violence find their experiences um, throughout all levels of the criminal justice system to be harmful and and unjust, as you mentioned, Um, and many indicate that if they were more informed about what reporting would look like, they would not have pursued it. Um, This is shocking but um could you like elaborate on like the different steps like someone would have to go through i know that the report mentioned that the interaction with the police officer is like very fundamental yeah so that's a really important point um the idea of reporting violence um, is not as simple as it might sound if you haven't been through it yourself or supported someone who has. It's really stepping into a really tough and arduous process, um, which is not designed to be super supportive or trauma-informed itself. So what it means is reporting um, of uh, an incident to police, which is what you say. So they are the first person of contact or the first line of contact for many folks, unless you have a designated, you know, community support person or access community services like, um, you know, the Newfoundland and Labrador Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center. You know, if you access a volunteer through their line or someone through the Journey Project, um, without these kind of designated support people, the police are the first person of contact um, if you're attempting to report violence. Um, And all of the research in Canada shows that that initial point of contact is the most important kind of factor in how survivors experience the criminal justice system because it is the first point of contact. Um, So there's many steps involved. Um, You know, reporting something can actually take quite a long time and involve multiple meetings um, and interviews um, and, you know, different participants and different players and sometimes offering up your personal belongings. Um, sometimes it can involve interactions with the healthcare system as well. Um, but it's really kind of stepping into uh, um, what can be a really difficult process for a lot of people if they choose to do so. Um, Another staggering stat that came out of your report is that um, in Canada, 16% of reported sexual assaults were wrote off by police and that the false reporting is between 2 and 8%. So it's a lot higher than that. I know (laughs) your report kind of starts off saying, you know, the criminal justice system has was founded on, you know, patriarchal and colonial practices that are still happening right now. So I guess that's like this, this practice is just so blatantly discriminating. Um, Why is it still happening? (laughs) I mean, that's a big question. Um, Yeah, I think that it's really important to draw the lines between um, reports in Canada, which go unfounded, compared to rates of false reporting, because if we didn't have that national really standard number of two to eight percent which is across all um, crimes the kind of understood rate of potential false reporting then then 16 percent might not seem as staggering but it is um 
and it again speaks to the kind of power dynamics at play when someone does um, attempt or choose to report violence that they've experienced. Um, and it kind of goes back to one of the recommendations, which is where the report really lands um, around a couple of things. And one thing is that based on the review and the information that's available about reform efforts that we recommend um, for ourselves, for others, for advocates and allies to really commit to a rigorous critical lens um, of reform efforts when we're looking at the criminal justice system. And another recommendation from the report was to divest from institutions and sectors in in the criminal justice system, which cause, based on research and testimony, to cause the most harm towards survivors, which is the police, Um, and instead to invest in opportunities and models and research, which is really founded on community care, transformative justice, restorative justice, and options for healing that um, are not harmful and instead are focused on the long-term safety for all people who are at risk of violence and specifically survivors who've already experienced it themselves. So speaking of um, like empowerment and safety, um, one-fourth of sexual assault survivors showed more interest in exploring restorative justice processes, those more than, you know, those of the criminal justice system. Um, What does restorative justice look like in the journey to healing? Um, Well, I'll be completely honest. Um, Learning about both restorative and transformative justice um, are relatively new to me. I know there's a lot of folks in the city and the province who have dedicated their lives to learning and working in these fields. And that's not something that I can claim to. Um, So it's I think it's something that deserves more of our attention and our focus in this kind of work. Um, Most recently, some members from our staff team um, have committed to um, attending a really fantastic panel with LEAF, which is uh, Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. It's a national entity, and actually they've produced some research, or their I should say their, um, their West Coast branch produced some research that's actually referenced in the report. Um, it's really fantastic work, and they produced a panel recently from experts um, in doing this kind of work across Canada about what transformative justice looks like for survivors, what accountability can look like. And what I've taken away from that learning specifically is that restorative justice is around restoring, um, making reparations, um, restoring relationships and providing opportunity for healing for people who have experienced harm. And that transformative justice is really rooted in transforming the conditions that allowed violence to happen in the first place. Um, So I think that is where uh, is all of our responsibility to kind of really advocate for more of an investment in those sectors because those are ones that survivors, as you say, are more interested in, have proven to cause less harm and and should be readily available and also recognized as, um, you know, legitimate avenues for justice. Yeah. And the thing with sexual assault um, and gender-based violence is that it's not all the same. Um, you know, it doesn't apply to one specific group of people, um, you know, it's across all cultures, ages, um, you know, socioeconomic uh, statuses. Um, so I guess healing can look different for different people for different reasons. Um, but yeah, I think I'm going to segue back to Drew. But before I do that, um, I did want to mention that I think it was on November 25th. Uh, Laura, you sat on that panel um, that the NDP put off. Um and that was on justice reform, I believe. And, you know, you 
had some really good uh, points made. I watched it live on Facebook. Um, and, you know, I loved the comment that you made. Like, we don't need another proclamation. We don't need another building lit up. Like, you know, what are some good action items that we can just start doing now to try and make things better? Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, and it's not that those things aren't meaningful, but certainly we're not going to flag raise our way out of this. They're, they're not the solutions. Those are, you know, pieces of symbolism that are important to some members of the community. But what we really need is a fulsome response from government. So our organization is calling for a task force on gender-based violence. And I want to be really clear about what task force means, because there's a lot of tables and committees and meetings and I would go as far to say that the community sector is meeting out when it comes to government. And what we don't need is another consultation. We know what the problem is. Survivors and sex workers and Indigenous women have been telling us for decades uh, what the problem is. Our organization has been in existence since 1972 and been dealing, unfortunately, with these issues since then. So we don't need more consultation or more roundtables. We need action. We need a budget dedicated to this. We need the province to essentially step up and say, this issue of gender-based violence is as important as, for example, the issue of health in this province and take the same type of action that they have around that in the creation of the Health Accord, which has a budget and staffing, has actionable goals and tangible outcomes attached to it. And we really need premier and ministerial level accountability um, around these issues. So that's what we're looking for. We haven't seen it. I have sent uh, letters of request to both the premier as well as the ministers responsible for the status of women and justice to start the conversations around that. Uh, we haven't received a response. And I think it's important that we also recognize these are not women's issues. These are everybody's issues. It's about the health and well-being of our society. And also want to acknowledge that survivors and sex workers and women and people of marginalized gender have been keeping each other safe forever. So the community care that Bridget was talking about happens in those communities, and we need to recognize that. There's a lot of talk about the resiliency of survivors. Oh, they're so resilient. They can get through this and heal. But we need to stop talking about resiliency and talk about resistance because survivors want change. Sex workers want change. And you know, those of us who have any ability to advocate to make that happen need to be advocating for that change. So it's wonderful. Survivors are strong, but they're also uh, out there saying this is not good enough. Uh, and so that's, I think, the position we're, we're in at the end of the day where this isn't good enough and we need some very different response from our government than what's happened in the past. Um, like we're still in many ways like unpacking like a legacy of ongoing violence. Um that sort of surrounds all of us. I don't know if it was in this report or another one that I saw elsewhere, but something like 54% of women in the province have dealt with domestic violence or something. Is that? Yeah, that was our a stat from um, our domestic violence at work research that said 54% of people that responded to that survey mm -hmm. uh, experienced domestic violence. And that's relevant uh, in comparison to a stat for similar research across Canada that's used almost the exact same methodology, same questions. And so they are comparable that 
said 34% of folks that responded in a pan-Canadian study experienced domestic violence. So quite a bit higher here in this province. So I think we do have a unique legacy, even within a Canadian context of violence. And I think you're really right in what you're saying that this is not just a, you know, violence doesn't just live in our institutions. And that's why we all need to be doing the work uh, to be reflexive and be looking at how we treat others in our lives and what our relationships look like within our organization. I mean, the feminist movement is not devoid of violence. There has been people hurt within the feminist movement throughout its history. And so we are always trying to um, be responsive in our organization and level the hierarchies and understand how we can take our practices and our beliefs around anti-racism and to, you know, be constantly doing that work. Because if we're not having the conversations internally, then we're not, you know, properly serving our community. So I think we all need to be reflexive and it can't just be critique of the system. We got to be doing our own internal critique as well, both as an organization and individuals. And that's something we take really seriously in our organization. Mm -hmm. Thank you both very much for coming in and speaking to us about this. This is uh, it's pretty important stuff, I think, um, not just in terms of like criminal justice reform. But yeah, I mean, I think as as a society, I think we, we definitely need to have a sort of like a frank reckoning with like the legacy um, and uh, pervasiveness of violence uh, everywhere around us. Thank you. And we want to say at the Status of Women Council and Women's Centre, we try to carve out spaces to have those conversations safely. And particularly if you're listening and have experienced gender-based violence, sexual violence, domestic violence, um, our organization is there for you. We provide those supports and services to anyone in the St. John's area who identifies as a woman or who is non-binary. Um, our centre is there for you. We're open 8.30 to 4.30 Monday to Friday and located at 170 Cashin Avenue. And please do connect with us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And we love just the community that we are so very privileged to serve. Yeah, thank you, everyone for having us. And I think that's the show for today. A mix of um, low humor and uh, intense topics. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's our show for this week. Uh, I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Brown at The Independent. My co-hosts today were Andy Bowman and Jen Brown, uh, who is my sister, who is awesome. <laughs> this may or may not be the last one we record before the holidays. I don't know if we figured that out yet. I don't know if I can physically like handle more work in the next like week and a half uh, due to all the other work that I've got to get finished before I take a break. Um, but we've, you know, all the hard work is paying off. We've had a number of really excellent pieces come out in the Independent recently. Uh, yesterday we published uh, Heidi Jane's second investigation into the food system in the province, specifically focused on food banks and actually how they're a perfect window into how much this government like does not give a fuck about poor people. Um, and basically just lets large corporations lobby the shit out of them to control all the laws and pay poverty wages. So it's super cool. It's a really fun, uh, joyous, gentle read that will absolutely not make you want to have a riot. Not that I would encourage anybody to riot. I'm just saying you may feel that way. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, and we just published something this morning. This is Wednesday we're recording. Um, from Rhea Rollman about a empty plot of land on Eric Street 
that is apparently the subject of a dispute between community gardeners, affordable housing um, proponents, the people that actually live on Eric Street, and city staff um, over what to do with this piece of land that is both community garden, beloved green space, possibly a bog of some sort. And uh, yeah, it's really good. It's like a perfect microcosm of how hard it is to do anything in the city. It's, uh, it's great. It's really good stuff. There's more coming also that I just gotta finish, so keep an eye out in the next couple of days. By the time you hear this episode, there may be more pieces. It's gonna be good. Okay. Oh yeah, please, please give us money. Uh, I mean, you don't have to give us, like, now core level bonus money, but, you know, like, even, like, a small fraction of that would be super. Uh, I can guarantee you we will cost the province fewer billions of dollars in disastrous outcomes um, if you donate your money. So There was um, more of a note of desperation in this week's plea than other weeks. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I just, listen, I've, I've published like 16,000 words in the last two days. I fucking need some money, man. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Cut me some fucking slack. Yes. 